Chapter 21 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 21. Gliding back from these hortative tones into the mood which befits the contemplative man, I repeat that it can only be learnt from the Greeks what such a sudden and miraculous awakening of tragedy must signify for the essential basis of a people's life. It is the people of the tragic mysteries, who fight the battles with the Persians, and again, the people who wage such wars required tragedy as a necessary healing potion. Who would have imagined that there was still such a uniformly powerful effusion of the simplest political sentiments, the most natural domestic instincts, and the primitive manly delight and strife in this very people after it had been shaken to its foundations for several generations by the most violent convulsions of the Dionysian demon. If at every considerable spreading of the Dionysian commotion one always perceives that the Dionysian loosing from the shackles of the individual makes itself felt first of all in an increased encroachment on the political instincts, to the extent of indifference, yea, even hostility, it is certain, on the other hand, that the state-forming Apollo is also the genius of the Principium Individuationis, and that the state and domestic sentiment cannot live without an assertion of individual personality. There is only one way from orgasm for a people, the way to Indian Buddhism, which in order to be at all endured with its longing for nothingness, requires the rare ecstatic states with their elevation above space, time, and the individual. Just as these in turn demand a philosophy which teaches how to overcome the indescribable depression of the intermediate states by means of a fancy. With the same necessity, owing to the unconditional dominance of political impulses, a people drifts into a path of extremist secularization. The most magnificent, but also the most terrible expression of which is the Roman Imperium. Placed between India and Rome, and constrained to a seductive choice, the Greeks succeeded in devising in classical purity still a third form of life. Not indeed for long private use, but just on that account for immortality. For it holds true in all things that those whom the gods love die young. But on the other hand, it holds equally true that they then live eternally with the gods. One must not demand of what is most noble, that it should possess the durable toughness of leather. The staunch durability which, for instance, was inherent in the national character of the Romans, does not probably belong to the indispensable predicates of perfection. But if we ask by what physic it was possible for the Greeks in their best period, notwithstanding the extraordinary strength of their Dionysian and political impulses, neither to exhaust themselves by ecstatic brooding, nor by a consuming scramble for empire and worldly honor, but to attain the splendid mixture which we find in a noble, inflaming, and contemplatively disposing wine. We must remember the enormous power of tragedy, 
exciting, purifying, and disburdening the entire life of a people. The highest value of which we shall divine only when, as in the case of the Greeks, it appears to us as the essence of all the prophylactic healing forces, as the mediator arbitrating between the strongest and most inherently faithful characteristics of a people. Tragedy absorbs the highest musical orgasm into itself, so that it absolutely brings music to perfection among the Greeks, as among ourselves. But it then places alongside thereof tragic myth and the tragic hero, who, like a mighty titan, takes the entire Dionysian world on his shoulders and disburdens us thereof, while on the other hand, it is able by means of the same tragic myth and the person of the tragic hero to deliver us from the intense longing for this existence, and reminds us with warning hand of another existence and a higher joy, for which the struggling hero prepares himself presciently by his destruction, not by his victories. Tragedy sets a sublime symbol namely the myth between the universal authority of its music and the receptive Dionysian hearer, and produces in him the illusion that music is only the most effective means for the animation of the plastic world of myth. Relying upon this noble illusion, she can now move her limbs for the dysthrambic dance, and abandon herself unhesitatingly to an orgiastic feeling of freedom, in which she could not venture to indulge as music itself without this illusion. The myth protects us from the music, while on the other hand, it alone gives the highest freedom thereto. By way of return for this service, music imparts to tragic myth such an impressive and convincing metaphysical significance as could never be attained by word or image, without this unique aid. And the tragic spectator in particular experiences thereby the sure presentiment of supreme joy, to which the path through destruction and negation leads. So that he thinks he hears, as it were, the innermost abyss of things speaking audibly to him. If in these last propositions I have succeeded in giving perhaps only a preliminary expression, intelligible to few at first, to this difficult representation, I must not here desist from stimulating my friends to a further attempt, or cease from beseeching them to prepare themselves, by a detached example of our common experience, for the perception of the universal proposition. In this example... I must not appeal to those who make use of the pictures of the scenic processes, the words and the emotions of the performers, in order to approximate thereby to musical perception. For none of these speak music as their mother tongue, and in spite of the aids in question, do not get farther than the precincts of musical perception, without ever being allowed to touch its innermost shrines. Some of them, like Gervinus, do not even reach the precincts by this path. I have only to address myself to those who, being immediately allied to music, 
have it, as it were, for their mother's lap, and are connected with things almost exclusively by unconscious musical relations. I ask the question of these genuine musicians, whether they can imagine a man capable of hearing the third act of Tristan und Isolde, without any aid of word or scenery, purely as a vast symphonic period, without expiring by a spasmodic distension of all the wings of the soul. A man who has thus, so to speak, put his ear to the heart-chamber of the cosmic will, who feels the furious desire for existence issuing therefrom as a thundering stream or most gently dispersed brook into all the veins of the world. Would he not collapse all at once? Could he endure in the wretched, fragile tenement of the human individual to hear the re-echo of countless cries of joy and sorrow from the, quote, vast void of cosmic night, end quote, without flying irresistibly toward his primitive home at the sound of this pastoral dance-song of metaphysics. But if, nevertheless, such a work can be heard as a whole, without a renunciation of individual existence, if such a creation could be created without demolishing its creator, where are we to get the solution of this contradiction? Here, there interpose between our highest musical excitement and the music in question, the tragic myth and the tragic hero. In reality, only as symbols of the most universal facts, of which music alone can speak directly. If, however, we felt as purely Dionysian beings, myth as a symbol would stand by us absolutely ineffective and unnoticed, and would never for a moment prevent us from giving ear to the re-echo of the universalia ante rem. Here, however, the Apollonian power, with a view to the restoration of the well-nigh shattered individual, bursts forth with the healing balm of a blissful illusion. All of a sudden, we imagine we see only Tristan, motionless, with hushed voice saying to himself, quote, The old tune, why does it wake me? End quote. And what formerly interested us like a hollow sigh from the heart of being, seems now only to tell us how, quote, Waste and void is the sea. End quote. And when breathless, we thought to expire by a convulsive distension of all our feelings, and only a slender tie bound us to our present existence. We now hear and see only the hero wounded to death, and still not dying, with his despairing cry, quote, Longing, longing, in dying still longing, for longing, not dying. End quote. And if formerly, after such a surplus and superabundance of consuming agonies, the jubilation of the born rent our hearts almost like the very acme of agony, 
the rejoicing Curvenal, now stands between us and the, quote, jubilation as such, end quote. With face turned toward the ship which carries Isolde. However powerfully fellow-suffering encroaches upon us, it nevertheless delivers us in a manner from the primordial suffering of the world, just as the symbol image of the myth delivers us from the immediate perception of the highest cosmic idea. Just as the thought and word deliver us from the unchecked effusion of the unconscious will. The glorious Apollonian illusion makes it appear as if the very realm of tones presented itself to us as a plastic cosmos, as if even the fate of Tristan and Isolde had been merely formed and molded therein as out of some most delicate and impressible material. Thus does the Apollonian wrest us from Dionysian universality and fill us with rapture for individuals. To these it rivets our sympathetic emotion. Through these it satisfies the sense of beauty which longs for great and sublime forms. It brings before us biographical portraits and incites us to a thoughtful apprehension of the essence of life contained therein. With the immense potency of the image, the concept, the ethical teaching, and the sympathetic emotion, the Apollonian influence uplifts man from his orgiastic self-annihilation and beguiles him concerning the universality of the Dionysian process into the belief that he is seeing a detached picture of the world, for instance, Tristan and Isolde, and that through music he will be enabled to see it still more clearly and intrinsically what can the healing magic of apollo not accomplish when it can even excite in us the illusion that the dionysian is actually in the service of the apollonian the effects of which it is capable of enhancing yea that music is essentially the representative art for an Apollonian substance? With the pre-established harmony which obtains between perfect drama and its music, the drama attains the highest degree of conspicuousness, such as is usually unattainable in mere spoken drama. As all the animated figures of the scene in the independently evolved lines of melody simplify themselves before us to the distinctness of the catenary curve the coexistence of these lines is also audible in the harmonic change which sympathizes in a most delicate manner with the evolved process through which change the relations of things become immediately perceptible to us in a sensible and not at all abstract manner as we likewise perceive thereby that it is only in these relations that the essence of a character and of a line of melody manifests itself clearly. And while music thus compels us to see more extensively and more intrinsically than usual, and makes us spread out the curtain of the scene before ourselves like some delicate texture, the world of the stage 
is as infinitely expanded for our spiritualized introspective eye as it is illumined outwardly from within. How can the word poet furnish anything analogous? Who strives to attain this internal expansion and illumination of the visible stage world by a much more imperfect mechanism and an indirect path, proceeding as he does from word and concept? Albeit, musical tragedy likewise avails itself of the word it is at the same time able to place alongside thereof its basis and source and can make the unfolding of the word from within outwards obvious to us of the process just set forth however it could still be said as decidedly that it is only a glorious appearance namely the aforementioned apollonian illusion through the influence of which we are to be delivered from the Dionysian obtrusion and excess. In point of fact, the relation of music to drama is precisely the reverse. Music is the adequate idea of the world. Drama is but the reflex of this idea, a detached umbrage thereof. The identity between the line of melody and the lining form between the harmony and the character relations of this form, is true in a sense antithetical to what one would suppose on the contemplation of musical tragedy. We may agitate and enliven the form in the most conspicuous manner, and enlighten it from within, but it still continues merely phenomenon, from which there is no bridge to lead us into the true reality, into the heart of the world. Music, however, speaks out of this heart, and though countless phenomena of the kind might be passing manifestations of this music, they could never exhaust its essence, but would always be merely its externalized copies. Of course, as regards the intricate relation of music and drama, nothing can be explained. While all may be confused by the popular and thoroughly false antithesis of soul and body. But the unphilosophical crudeness of this antithesis seems to have become, who knows for what reasons, a readily accepted article of faith with our aestheticians. While they have learned nothing concerning an antithesis of phenomenon and the thing in itself, or perhaps for reasons equally unknown, have not cared to learn anything thereof. Should it have been established by our analysis that the Apollonian element in tragedy has by means of its illusion gained a complete victory over the Dionysian primordial element of music, and has made music itself subservient to its end, namely, the highest and clearest elucidation of the drama, it would certainly be necessary to add the very important restriction, that at the most essential point this Apollonian illusion is dissolved and annihilated. The drama, which by the aid of music, spreads out before us with such inwardly illumined distinctness in all its movements and figures, that we imagine we see the texture unfolding on the loom as the shuttle flies to and fro attains as a whole an effect which 
transcends all Apollonian artistic effects. In the collective effect of tragedy, the Dionysian gets the upper hand once more. Tragedy ends with a sound which could never emanate from the realm of Apollonian art. And the Apollonian illusion is thereby found to be what it is. The assiduous veiling during the performance of tragedy of the intrinsically Dionysian effect, which, however, is so powerful that it finally forces the Apollonian drama itself into a sphere where it begins to talk with Dionysian wisdom and even denies itself and its Apollonian conspicuousness. Thus, then, the intricate relation of the Apollonian and the Dionysian in tragedy must really be symbolized by a fraternal union of the two deities. Dionysus speaks the language of Apollo. Apollo, however, finally speaks the language of Dionysus. And so the highest goal of tragedy and of art in general is attained. End of chapter 21 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia